you see here today a replica of the manger scene. Now, probably most of us, when we think about a manger scene, we're used with our nativity sets and things like that. We're used to seeing, you know, a pitched wooden barn, and you would have a wooden manger that you would place the baby Jesus in with hay in there and things like that. But the truth is, there's no way it was a wooden barn. Wood in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, and that part of Israel is hard to find. And the only olive trees that you would have would be down in the valleys where there's a little water every now and then. And so this is more authentic of what it would be. So we know the story of Jesus is that when he came to, when he was brought with his, in, in the womb with Mary and Joseph, there was no room in the inn. The inn most likely was a little rock-built building that would have a few rooms in it where travelers could stay in, but there was no place for them. So next would have been a cave. Jesus was born in a cave. And used to be that you could stand down on what they call the uh, Shepherd's Valley, and because this is Jerusalem stone, both in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem, Bethlehem is about five or six miles from Jerusalem, and it used to be now it is covered in apartments, and there's all kinds of uh, the settlements that's being built there in the Valley of the Shepherds, and so it's not as easy to see, but when you do have a view of the sides of the hills there, there's all kinds of caves. Because when it does rain, it normally pours, and it would naturally make these caves in this Jerusalem stone that is there. So when there was no place to lay Jesus in the inn, for him to be born in the inn, they would have found a cave. Now, later on, in those two years that they were in Bethlehem before Herod lost his mind and went to kill all the babies because he heard the king of the Jews had been born, more than likely after the birth, he was probably taken out of the cave and he was put into a home that would have been built in the side of the cliffs there. And we would, we would say it's more of a home than just a cave because they would hoon out a couple rooms and and that they would have there in Nazareth. So this year, Matt really wanted to be as authentic as we can to really show what it would have been like where Jesus was born. And you can even notice the, the manger here is, is a rock. It's not really a rock, but it's made to look like a rock. And that the color is... You know, it's, it's, it's a grayish white just like that. So I hope that it, it causes you to consider what it was like when Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. This next two or three weeks for the Christmas Eve, and we're going to talk about some reasons why Jesus came. Some reasons why Jesus came. This is the first one of them. Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 14, then Jesus returned to Galilee. This is after the temptation that he experienced down along the Dead Sea, the Jordan River Valley. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. 
Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home. So when Jesus returns from Egypt, he settles in Nazareth with Joseph and Mary. He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Interesting, the synagogue in Nazareth is much like a very large cave. They dug out, it, the, the, the ground is rock where you walk, the sides of the walls are rock, and it's, a, it's an oval roof that they had there. It's a, obviously very productive for singing. The, the acoustics are built for that, or just by happen chance that you star. And that's the synagogue. That's where he would go. And he taught regularly in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boy at home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Verse 17, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. Okay? He enrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. So I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And I want to turn, I'm turning to the exact same place where Jesus turned to. I have a Bible. He had a scroll. And so he unravels that scroll and he comes to the place. And these are the words. Now think about this for a moment. These are the words of Jesus, right? Reading the words of Isaiah that were spoken 700 years before Jesus came. All right? And so these words were written on the scroll. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. To be, the word anointed means that you are rubbed up with some oil or some ointment. In other words, there is a visible mark that is placed on your head and... and uh, you can see that, the shine of the oil or the color of the ointment that would be anointing you. He says, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. So that's what he read in, on the, in that synagogue that day. And we know that because this, they record what he said in that synagogue 2,700 years later, 2,000 years ago. And in verse 18, the words of Jesus in red, these are the things that Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolls up the scroll, and he hands it back to the attendant, and he sat down. 
And all the eyes in the synagogue look at him intently, the Scripture says. Then he began to speak to them. The Scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The Scripture that you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. The response of the people. Everyone spoke well of him. They were amazed by the gracious words that that came from his lips. How can this be, they ask? Isn't this Joseph's son? So if, if that had not taken place, and we come to today, and someone comes in, and they stand and they speak for us, and they read Isaiah's words, and they stand up, and they're profound in speech. There's a depth to it. There's an understanding of God's words that's obvious with the speaker. And the speaker speaks and reads these words and says, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And it just so happens that that person is from Alito. We, we saw him go to school. We saw him go to high school. We saw him graduate. We have seen him around town. We know where he works. We have been around him. Perhaps we've never made a judgment about him. We've never established an opinion about the guy. But then he says with words of clarity, words of strength, words of power, that the Scripture has been fulfilled this very day, we'd go, man, that's really neat. That's really good that someone from Alito would rise to that kind of spiritual awareness. And perhaps we would speak well of him. We would speak well of him. And we would speak about how eloquently he spoke the words of grace. And then he speaks up. And he says, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. You see, it was a proverb, not from our book of Proverbs, but a cultural proverb from the day, from the culture that says that a physician did not have the right or the authority to heal someone of a disease until they themselves have been healed of the same disease. And so if you're going to come in here and if, if you're going to straighten us out, we at least need to know that you yourself have straightened yourself out with whatever it is you're going to tell us that we struggle with, that, that ails us. And so Jesus knows their heart, and he knows where they're going. And so he says, you will undoubtedly, he knows it's coming, in other words, you will quote me this, this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. Capernaum and Nazareth are, are just about 25, 30 miles apart. And so word traveled, right? No question about this. And so they understand all that. And he says, but I tell you, no prophet has accepted his own hometown. Now, a delightful speaker, 
a delightful teacher, a teacher of love and grace and comfort, they'll be accepted in their hometown. If it's all positive, if, if it's all therapeutic, if it brings comfort to us, if it makes us feel good, you, you, can, you can be the teacher in your hometown. But a prophet that speaks the whole truth, the prophet that deals with issues like sin, that speaks truth, that lets the people know how they really are before God, not so much acceptance. Matter of fact, you know, the expert is the one that's 100 miles away. If the expert comes in and speaks truth, they're not going to be as accepted as well if they're speaking the truth. And, and Jesus came to speak the truth. And listen to this truth that Jesus spoke. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Elijah's time was a long time ago from, from this place of 2,000 years ago. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. So here is Jesus, a boyhood guy, a, a hometown guy. And he says, y'all remember Elijah? Sure, we remember Elijah. Do you remember that when you had that three and a half year famine, no rain? Times were tough back then. We read about it in the first Kings. We understand how tough time was back then. Do you remember that with all the people who were hurting, all the people who were thirsty, all the people that were struggling. Remember, people were starving back then. People weren't able to make any money. It was a difficult time. You remember those days. God sent Elijah not to you, but to the widow of Zarephath. Almost like you Texans, God didn't come to help you. He went to Minnesota. He went to those Yankees. God forbid. What about us? We're mighty. Tell what? You know, don't tell me he went to them. He, he, that, that, that didn't, that's not how God, God did not judge us that way. But, but that's what this boyhood, this, this guy local said. A guy from their town said, Elijah was not sent to any of them that was devastated in our land in the famine, he was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. Not, not so pleased now, are they? And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. So he's using Elijah and Elisha, two prophets that they, knew, they know well. They know all the events that surround these two prophets. But only one healed, only one of the lepers was healed in that day, and that was Naaman, a Syrian. 
Oh, it gets worse. I mean, their enemy, all their lives, their enemy, their nemesis is the Syrians. So much like today, the Syrians are still enemies of the Jewish people. And you remember when, when the guy that was healed, Naaman, a Syrian. So Jesus tells them that he is sent to them, but he tells them that he already knows their decision about him being sent to them. He knows it's not going to set well when he reveals to them that they have sinned against God and they must repent of their sin and they must believe in him as the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God. He knows that they're going to reject him. He knows what's about to happen because he knows their heart. And, and so he shares these two stories with them, two events that happened where God walked over them and went to foreigners and provided his comfort to them and not to the Jewish people. Now, look in verse 28. Now, you remember, when they first hear him speak, man, they're, they're just, I'm proud of our guy. I'm proud of Joseph's son. Man, in this wonderful Jesus, this Jesus that we saw grow up, he's standing up in the synagogue and he's reading so eloquently. He's reading with such grace and with such wisdom. And, and so they're happy about that. But then they hear a little bit of the truth. And it says in verse 28, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill. They call this today the Mount of Precipice. And to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. And Nazareth, like Bethlehem, like Jerusalem, is built on a mountain, on a hill, a very large hill. It may not be necessarily called a mountain, but it's a pretty good elevation that, that you climb up to Nazareth to. And it, they, they take him to the edge of the cliff, and, and I've been to the place where they say is the place. So let me tell you something. If that is the place, he, when they're holding him, about to throw him up, it's a drop. It's a fall. It's a long way down there. I mean, you look down there, first Tennessee to pull back a little bit. It's straight down. And, and they, they're so upset, they mob him, they grab him, and they take him to the edge of the city, and they're going to throw him over the cliff. That's what they intend to do. They are so mad at what's taking place. But verse 30 says, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. I don't know what that looks like, that he passed right through the crowd. Does it mean that God paralyzed their hands, perhaps. Does it mean that he just automatically blinded them, perhaps? Does it mean that, that God just, you know, miraculously took him and moved him through the crowd? Man, I don't know. But I know that it's pretty cool, isn't it? What a deal here. What's going on? Ought to have been enough 
to cause all the Nazarene people, everyone from Nazareth to go, wait a minute now, wait a minute, did y'all just see what we just saw? You saw it, Hank, you saw it, Bob, Julie, you saw it. Did you just see what, what took place? I mean, how did he get through us? We were mad, we were angry, we were gonna end it. We had enough people here to throw him off the cliff. There's no way in the world he was going to be able to fight us all. There's no way he was going to be able to win that wrestling match. And he just walked through us. Ought that be enough? Isn't that a big enough miracle to cause us to understand that the scripture that he read today is about him? But they didn't. They didn't. Now, the, the meat of this story today is not so much about him passing through the crowd. It's about what he came to do. And he read from Isaiah what that great servant of Isaiah would come to do. And it's absolutely good news. It's great news. It's spectacular news. It's not bad news at all. Now, there's a few things that we need to keep in mind here about us. We aren't good enough. I hope you understand that. You aren't good enough. We aren't good enough in our flesh. We're just not good enough. You've ever come to the point in your life when you say, I'm just not good enough. You are absolutely correct. You're not good enough. I am not good enough. We aren't good enough. We can't do enough. We aren't good enough, and we can't do enough. And the overwhelming truth is, regardless of how well-meaning you are, no matter how beautiful your intent is, none of us, not one single one of us, can make up for the wrong that we have done. We can't. I can't, you can't. None of us on our own. None of us with human effort, human achievement. Not one single one of us can ever be good enough. We aren't good enough. We can never be good enough. We're never going to do enough. We can't self-discipline being good enough. We can't put the effort to it and say, look at all this effort I have done Surely by now you receive me. I've done all this work. I've improved. I've improved. Each year I've improved, and I've become better and better and better. But the truth of the matter is we can't do enough. We can never make up for the sin that we have committed, for the wrong that we have done. And from what Jesus says here as the reason he fulfills this prophecy and the, and the reason why he came, this is good news, the best news, the most marvelous news we could ever hear. Listen to what he says. First of all, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It means that he is the chosen one. He's anointed. He says, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Wow. Good news to the poor. That's an interesting statement he makes. He came to bring the good news, and he's starting with the poor. That's his assignment. Now, the poor is e either 
financially poor, he came for those who are financially poor, or it, it, it means that he came for those who are spiritually poor, okay? In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So either it means that they're financially poor, financially poor or it means they're spiritually poor, and, and to be spiritually poor means that we know that we aren't good enough. We know that we can't do enough. We know that we can never make up for what we have done. That's spiritually poor. Jesus says, I didn't come for the people that don't think they need a doctor. I came for those people that know that they are sick. That's who he came for. So it means either the financially poor or it means the spiritually poor, or perhaps it means both, because that's exactly what he did. He preached the gospel to both the spiritually poor and the financially poor. And I think there's some good reason for it. First of all, the poor made the best believers. The poor were most likely to take the gospel in all the world. The poor were the most likely people to embrace what he says, to, to follow him, to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. And that's what he's after. Jesus is building for himself a group, a team, a church that would say, we're going to go to Cambodia and we're going to share the good news about Jesus. We're going to go to Peru and share the good news about Jesus. We're going to go to the Center of Hope and share the good news about Jesus. That's who we are. And, and so that's what Jesus came to do. So he says, the Lord God has appointed me, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. It says, he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. Captives. Captive to what? Well, obviously, captive to sin. Captive, in jail to sin, in bondage to sin. All of us know about that. We all understand what it's like to be bondage to sin. We know what that's like, to be controlled, to not be able to do any better. To, to, to not be able to self-will ourselves to a sinless life to make up for all we have done. Nope, can't be done. And Jesus came to set captives free. And he also came that the blind will see. Now, the sin that keeps us from seeing that God is God is the removal of the sin of unbelief. And so when Jesus says that the blind will see, he says that unbelief is going to be replaced with belief, just like hate will be replaced with love, right? That's what Jesus does. He comes and, and he, he deals with the hate, the sin of hate in us, and he, he replaces it with love. That's the work of the Spirit. And the work of the unbelieving will believe is a miracle. It's a flat-out miracle. And Jesus came to bring that miracle. And then he says, and that the oppressed will be set free. The oppressed, those who are victim to injustice, we're going to set them free. People can learn through the, the, the Spirit's work through Jesus, through the forgiveness of sin, that we are no longer victims. We are free. And the crazy thing about this is we may be slaves to another person. We, we may be victims of injustice, but there is going to be a supernatural power that regardless of the condition that we're in and the circumstances we're in, 
the Holy Spirit can cause us to live above all that. That's what Jesus come to do. And then it says that not only is he going to forgive us of our sin, he's going to pay the penalty of our sin, he's going to set the captives free, he's going to cause the blind to see, he's going to take the, those who are experiencing injustice, and he's going to set them free from the victimization of that injustice. But then he says, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. The time of grace. The time of grace. So when you realize that we aren't good enough, what do we need? Grace. When we realize we can't ever do enough, and I hope you've come to the place in your life where you realize that not only are you not good enough, but I hope you realize you can't do enough. I hope you quit trying to do enough, and and, and that we can't make up for all that we've done. We can't make up for it. Can't do it. It cannot be done. But the Lord has come. And this is the time of the Lord's favor. And what Jesus did for us on the cross pays the price of our sin. And if we'll just believe in that, we are set free from the bondage, from the pain, from the guilt, from the suffering, from the life of sin in us. And the chains of, of, of what sin puts us in, the prison he puts us in, the chains are broken, and and we can live a different life. That's why Jesus came. Sure, Jesus came because he loves us. This is obvious, isn't it? No question about that. But he came so that we could know the absolute, man, what is it? I don't even know a word that describes it. The absolute... The absolute awesomeness, powerfulness, spectacular to be completely, totally forgiven of our sin. And you remember at the end of the sermon last week about gratitude, about thanksgiving? I mean, when you know that you don't deserve to be forgiven, but you are when you know that you can't make up enough for all that you've done and yet you're totally forgiven and you don't have to make up for it, you, do, you can quit trying to be better. You can just live this exchange life that, that Jesus came to bring. There is nothing better than that. And we can be thankful regardless of our circumstances because we are forgiven. So this Christmas season, when all the stuff goes on, man, isn't Christmas crazy? Christmas is nuts. You're gonna be, you're gonna burn the candle at both ends. You're gonna run around. You know, you're gonna be trying to get that perfect gift, and you're gonna struggle with that. And and you're gonna want to have the perfect meal on Christmas Day, and. You want to have all the stuff going for you, you know, and it's just going to be a, a time of stress and a time of, of just nuts. Man, just think about this. Because Jesus came and we believe in him, we are totally, completely forgiven of all our sin and we are going to heaven. Amen.
Lord, help us to believe in the reason why you came to forgive us of our sin. And Lord, today we know we're none of us on our own are good enough. None of us on our own, Lord, can do enough good to make up for what we've done. But Lord, through Jesus, we can be for completely, totally, absolutely forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, in this moment, right now, later on this afternoon, if you're thinking about what the Holy Spirit speaks to you about today, you feel the tug on your heart, just believe. Believe what, what God's Word says. Believe that Jesus came to forgive you of your sins. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sins. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word all in there is a big word. Three letters, but it's a big word. All unrighteousness. Everything. You may be thinking, yeah, Lee, I know that God came to forgive me and Jesus came to forgive me. But there is sin in my life that you don't know about, and, and this sin is horrible, and this sin causes a lot of problems, a lot of pain in people. No, no, no. He is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of all our sins. All. Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Have you been saved? Are you born again? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are totally forgiven of all your sins? That you are right with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you? Do you know? What a great time this morning to, to know and, and, and to replace all your doubts and all your questions and just leave them alone for a while and just say, I believe what the scripture tells me today. And I submit, I surrender, I confess, I agree. I ask for Jesus to come into my life and forgive me of my sins. Our band is going to play for us. And if you need to be saved today, if you need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, come kneel at the altar and help us help you be totally, absolutely forgiven all your sin. It's not through anything we can do for you, but it's all that what Jesus has done. So let's stand and sing. The Holy Spirit speaks to you. Come, kneel at the altar and pray. Receive Christ as your Savior. Come and rededicate your life. Come and, and pray for someone that needs to know Christ. But come and, and obey the Lord today.